Hey everyone, and welcome back to Big Mad True Crime, where we get big mad over true crime. I'm your host, Heather Ashley, and this week you'll be hearing part two of what happened to Elizabeth Salgado. Small talk sucks, so let's dive in. Last week, we went over Elizabeth's background and what brought her to Utah. We talked about the few weeks she was in Provo and how limited her experiences were. Home, work, church, and school, all of which were in a two and a half mile radius. We talked about how she seemed to vanish into thin air after leaving her school and that there were no cameras pointed towards the streets to give police any indication of how close she might have gotten to her apartment before she disappeared. Law enforcement tried everything they could to get an idea of where Elizabeth might have gone from searches to downloading routers, tracking down guys who'd asked her out, and even talking to both sets of roommates she'd stayed with, but nothing led them any closer to finding her. With every step forward, they were knocked back to square one, and with no sign of Elizabeth for 12 days and no activity on her bank account or social media, a name that everyone recognized, stepped up to the plate to bring some much-needed attention to her case. That name was Elizabeth Smart. For those of you who don't know who Elizabeth Smart is, in 2002, she was abducted at knife point in her own bedroom. She was held captive for nine months while everyone in Utah band together to make sure that every single person knew her name and face. And all of that continued effort paid off when a stranger recognized her out in public, despite the fact that she'd been dressed in a disguise. Smart was rescued, and since then, she and her family have made it their mission to stand behind families of missing persons, which is exactly what they did for Elizabeth Salgado. At a press conference, People.com reports that Smart touched on the importance of the media when it comes to missing persons cases, saying that it cannot be overstated. She said, I got involved in the hope that others will take notice of her situation and will give their time, attention, and prayers. She is an amazingly strong young woman who has a bright future ahead of her. When asked if she thought Elizabeth Salgado was still alive, she said, I do believe that she's alive and we can find her. The one thing that I continually hope and pray for is that every child that is missing can have the same coverage, have the same prayers, and have the same support that I had. We've all seen the role that media, or even social media, can play in solving cases. Marlene Ochoa Lopez's case was essentially solved by a Facebook group, and we saw all the tips, videos, and photos that the media was able to garner with Gabby Petito's case. Unfortunately, Elizabeth Salgado's case is one that, despite every effort, has not gotten the attention it deserves. Several locals told me that they remembered a burst of news when she went missing, flyers all along Center and State Streets and billboards up on I-15, but then there was nothing. Life in Provo moved on, but life never moved on for Elizabeth's family. At that press conference, one of Elizabeth's uncles told the public that their family was devastated, that having someone in your family just vanish is the worst thing you can imagine. Up until that point, Elizabeth's uncles were her only family members in the country who could really take the stage and be a voice for her. According to Disappeared, her family had applied for humanitarian visas, but the wait had been agonizing. On April 30th, 2015, Fox 13 reports that Elizabeth's parents and two of her brothers were finally able to make it to the U.S., but the clock was ticking. 
Their visas were only valid for 15 days, but they were determined to find Elizabeth and bring her back home. With Elizabeth's parents finally in Provo, another press conference was held. It was raw and emotional, and the public saw firsthand the agonizing pain that her family was in. Her family wasn't fluent in English, so a translator was at the conference, and the station noted that even the translator fought back tears while her mother broke down pleading for help. Elizabeth's family believed that she had been kidnapped. Her dad telling disappeared, she wasn't swallowed by the earth, she wasn't abducted by aliens, people don't just vanish. His statement was something that made me pause for a second. It was so simple, but really impactful. We say things like, it's like she just vanished into thin air all the time. But he's right. No one just vanishes. There's always a cause. And he really broke that down in the simplest of terms. Law enforcement also spoke at that conference and let the public know that several agencies across the state were working together to find Elizabeth saying that while they don't have any evidence of an abduction, there's no video of one and no one reported seeing a struggle, they don't believe that she was abducted by a stranger. It's kind of a 2 plus 2 equals 4 situation. They went over the same process that we walked through in the last episode, that if there had been a struggle, people would have seen it. They would have remembered it or reported it. But if she willingly got into a vehicle, it would have looked like any other day and wouldn't have been something that people thought to remember. And while we tend to remember the major events of our day, those small memories still exist. It's accessing those memories that might play a big role here. By the end of the press conference, the police said that they're doing everything they can to identify and interview every single person who crossed paths with Elizabeth in the few weeks she was in Provo. They asked for anyone and everyone to come forward with any information they might have. No matter how big or small or petty as it may seem, they wanted to know. If you heard a rumor, they wanted to know. If you had a gut feeling, they wanted to know. If you thought you saw someone who even remotely resembled Elizabeth, they wanted to know. The evening after that press conference, there was a vigil scheduled to spread awareness for Elizabeth and stand by her family. Her family had every intent on being there, but they didn't wind up making it. According to Disappeared, just minutes before the vigil was about to start, Provo police pulled her family aside to give them some information that sucked the air out of the room. Earlier that day, in a ravine off of I-80 near the Great Saltaire, about 56 miles north of Provo, Fox 13 reports that a transportation worker was just going about his day when he noticed a suitcase. It's not unusual to find discarded items off the side of the interstate, and people are always using it to travel, so a suitcase definitely isn't the strangest find in the world, but there was something off about it. It didn't smell right. Not knowing what he might find inside, he decided to call the police. When they got there, they found the one thing that everyone was hoping it wasn't. It was a body. While the police weren't saying much, the transportation worker told Fox 13 that he thinks the woman in the suitcase had dark hair. How he determined the remains were female is still a mystery because according to NBC News, police weren't immediately able to determine gender due to how decomposed the body was. 
But the information from the worker kept coming. He told KUTV that the body looked like it had been faded from the sun, but he felt like it hadn't been there for months or years, more like weeks. Now, those are bold statements from someone who isn't a medical examiner, but they were all anyone had. It's no surprise that once Fox 13 reported that detectives from Provo had showed up at the scene, everyone started to wonder if the woman in the suitcase was Elizabeth. And it was definitely a possibility. Elizabeth's family told Disappear that when they got the news, it felt like their world fell apart. They prayed that it wasn't her, but felt like all hope had been lost. Elizabeth's family didn't get a wink of sleep that night. They waited for any news, and as the autopsy began, detectives started asking them really specific questions, like whether or not Elizabeth had any tattoos or distinctive scars, which she didn't, but the body in the suitcase did. By the following day, Elizabeth's family was told that the body along I-80 was not Elizabeth. It was the body of a woman who'd gone missing in Las Vegas six months prior. While they were able to breathe a sigh of relief, they were also devastated for the family who'd just gotten the news that they had been dreading. The tips for Elizabeth were flooding in, but every possible sighting wound up not being her, and every lead wound up at a dead end. By May 4th, police offered a $5,000 reward for information leading to Elizabeth's whereabouts. She was also added to Datelines Missing in America. With Dateline featuring Elizabeth, a spokesperson for the family released a statement on behalf of her mom saying, I forgive the person that has her if he has done something to her, but let her free. And I don't think any of us can calculate the amount of strength it takes a mother to say that. Within days of the first reward, the Spectrum reports that with the help of a local company and an anonymous donor, the reward tripled to $15,000. They hoped it would encourage people to come forward if they'd been holding anything back. And with the media's full attention on Elizabeth, her family felt like there was no better time than then to paint the town with flyers and not just Provo. According to the Daily Herald, local printers donated 25,000 flyers and volunteers broke up into teams, putting them all over Provo and even traveling to surrounding counties like Springville, Spanish Fork, and Orem. When I asked locals what they remembered most about the time surrounding Elizabeth's disappearance, the one thing that all of them had in common was that they all remembered seeing her flyers everywhere. While the community was doing everything they could, detectives followed up on more than 100 tips. They went back to the school and, according to Disappeared, straight up interrupted class and interviewed every single student and staff member one by one until they'd gotten a statement from each and every one of them. For reference, that wound up being roughly 230 interviews. They also interviewed all sex offenders in the area and contacted anyone that she'd had contact with on social media. On top of all of that, they enlisted the help of the FBI, the Attorney General's office, Interpol, Homeland Security, and Mexican investigative authorities. Naturally, because Elizabeth had lived in Mexico her entire life, aside from those few weeks in Provo, detectives had to make sure they were investigating people there as well, and with good reason. According to the Provo detective assigned to her case, an uncle of Elizabeth's, not one of the ones mentioned in this case, had come to California a decade or so prior, and apparently he too went missing. Now, I don't have any media sources to back this up, but according to the detective, Elizabeth's then-missing uncle 
wound up showing back up at home in Mexico seven years later. That's a coincidence that the police couldn't ignore, so investigators had to look into it. But from what I can gather, the two incidents don't seem to be connected. The searches for Elizabeth continued on through the end of May. Police retraced every possible route she could have taken home, as well as the Provo River Trail, which curves right around her apartment complex. They went through it with a fine-tooth comb, and this time, Fox 13 says they brought out dogs. There were some hints in the media around the time that there was more going on than the public knew, but that being said, the public knew a lot. The Provo Police Department made sure that everyone knew that finding Elizabeth was their top priority. According to Fox 13, they'd assigned their entire detective division to Elizabeth's case. There were 30 people actively working it, had dedicated more than 3,500 man hours, and according to the detective, were having daily meetings with the family. As thorough as the department seemed to be, it doesn't look like Elizabeth's family felt the same way. The Salt Lake Tribune reports that Elizabeth's sister sent out an email saying that she wanted the FBI involved because, according to her, the police weren't working at 100%. She acknowledged that the department was in constant contact with the family, but were frustrated when they felt like police weren't working all tips as seriously as others. Investigations are a fickle beast, so I asked the detective about this. According to him, the Provo Police Department has followed up on every tip that has come in, but as we know from other cases, some tips are just more credible than others. Generally, the police know more about any given investigation than the public or even the family does. Some things have to be kept close to the vest to protect the integrity of the investigation, and because of that, it's a lot easier for investigators to discern whether or not a tip is credible. That being said, Elizabeth's family was in pain. Everything would have felt like a credible tip to them. Everything would have felt like a potential break in the case, no matter how likely or unlikely it seemed. I have personally found nothing to indicate that the department didn't do everything in their power to try and find Elizabeth, but having worked with other families in the past who felt the same way that Elizabeth's family did, I've seen the frustration of wanting every lead to be treated the same. May of 2015 came and went, and with no sign of Elizabeth, her uncle in California, Uncle Rosenberg, decided it was time for him to come to Utah. The Daily Herald reporting that he left everything behind, including his university teaching job, to head east to join in the search for his niece. Shortly after he got there, he was contacted by someone who claimed to have Elizabeth and asked for money to get her back. Now, we've heard of people sending these messages or making these calls in other episodes that we've done. There's a solid group of soulless gremlins in the world that just troll the internet for families of missing people to exploit. But for Elizabeth's uncle, he was willing to do anything. He told Disappear that he headed straight to the bank and called the detective on the way, letting him know what was going on. Having handled dozens of missing persons cases, the detective told him to stop. Don't go to the bank. This could just be an attempt at extortion, and that's exactly what it was. They wound up tracing the call back to an abandoned house in Texas, and Elizabeth most definitely was not there. As far and wide as Elizabeth's investigation had spread, there was still no sign of her, and the public's efforts to find her were about to take a deep nosedive. In late June of 2015, two and a half months after Elizabeth disappeared, people started speaking out with concerns about her uncles. 
The first concern I came across early on in the investigation was the fact that it was the uncle in California who reported her missing, not the uncle in Provo. But hey, that could be nothing. We know that California uncle did communicate with Rudy when he was out trying to track her down at school work in her apartment. The second set of concerns came from statements that people felt came off as odd. I read them and I see where they're coming from, but you have to consider that there's a bit of a language barrier. Both uncles speak English, but some of their statements had been made in Spanish and translated to English, which can wind up rearranging some words, and I think that really threw some people off. But it got a little deeper than that. One of the people who had organized a few of the searches for Elizabeth told ABC4 that he quit after a month due to his growing distrust for her uncles. He told the station, My impression is that they know something. They know information that they're not sharing, like what really happened with Elizabeth. We found some inconsistencies with the stories. He also said that he felt like they were more concerned with raising money than finding Elizabeth. There was a GoFundMe that had been set up that raised over $12,000, and a volunteer told ABC4 that cash, housing, meals, and travel had been donated, along with that $15,000 reward. Another volunteer who didn't want to be named also spoke with the station and told them, To be honest, I think it's either Rudy alone or Rudy and Rosenberg, both of them. People say that either they probably did something, they either sold her or something for money, or they probably have her against her will, hidden somewhere basically to get money out of it. To play devil's advocate here, the volunteer's statement included the phrase, People say, so it does sound like it might have been influenced by second and third parties. The searchers starting to talk was suspicious because, you know, they'd been the ones on the ground taking time out of their own lives to help Elizabeth's family find her, and the rumor mill definitely picked up some traction, but not everyone was ready to jump on that train. It's when Juan Ruiz, the chairman of the board of the Latin American Chamber of Commerce, spoke up that everyone's eyes got really wide really fast. He told ABC4 that they'd donated time, money, and volunteers to the search efforts to find Elizabeth, but stopped after they say there were a few instances where people approached them, telling them that Elizabeth's family was saying that no one was helping them. When the station asked Ruiz about Elizabeth's uncles, he said, One of them was really close to her, and the last message was sent to him. The last phone call was sent to him. There are just so many things that just don't make sense, that it almost makes you feel like, is it possible she went with somebody she trusted? Is it possible that when she got into somebody's car, or if she entered somebody's house with somebody she didn't feel threatened by, and ended up being the opposite? ABC4 called Elizabeth's uncle Rosenberg to get his take on all of this, and he told the station that neither he nor his brother had anything to do with Elizabeth's disappearance and that she'll be returning home soon, saying, When Elizabeth comes back home, you know, hopefully she will be found soon. She will actually clear everything. I think we can all see why that statement didn't help at all and was followed by a swarm of people asking questions like, How does he know she'll be home soon? It's hard to really tell where translation, rightful suspicion, and statements made by someone who might not be comfortable talking to the media intersect with this case, but the police started having their own concerns. The detective on her case told me that he started getting phone calls from people in the neighborhood they were staying in, reporting on what we'll just say was odd behavior, especially considering the circumstances. So their eyebrows started to raise too. In the Disappeared episode, they talked about how the uncles were actually given voice analysis tests, which they say they passed. But then came the polygraph tests. 
The show did a really good job of walking through the grading scale of polygraph tests, saying that a positive three indicates that someone is telling the truth, zero is also on the truth scale, and anything negative three and below is considered a fail. According to the investigator on Disappeared, Rudy, the uncle from Provo, scored just above failing. However, he said that Rosenberg did fail. Now, we know that there's a reason that polygraphs aren't admissible in court and that you can lie and pass and you can tell the truth and fail, but law enforcement couldn't take that chance. The detective told me that at that point in time, law enforcement was meeting with the family on a weekly basis to update them on what was going on in the investigation, sometimes for hours at a time. But because of her uncle's polygraph scores, those two had to be excluded from the meetings. This only catapulted the public's probe into Elizabeth's uncles, but the original detective on her case told Disappeared that after serving warrants and dumping their phones, he'd be surprised if either of them had anything to do with Elizabeth's disappearance. After the uncle uproar, Elizabeth's case went silent for almost six months until Crime Watch Daily picked up her story and shared some big news. That $15,000 reward had been bumped up to $50,000, which is a huge incentive for someone who might be holding on to information out of fear or blind loyalty. Unfortunately, though, that wasn't the only news. The tips that were once coming in steadily were dwindling, and her case that once had the entire detective division assigned to it had only one full-time detective. For what it's worth, that detective was a no-holds-barred badass who would have stopped at nothing to find her. According to Disappeared, her picture was so ingrained in his brain that he would look for her even when he wasn't at work. He'd actually had to turn around driving down the street before because he thought he might have seen someone that even remotely resembled her. After December of 2015, the public updates on Elizabeth's case just ceased to exist. Police were still actively working it in the background, but like locals in Provo said, after the initial media interest in her case, everything went silent. Of course, when the one-year anniversary of her disappearance came around, there were a few articles, but that was it. And then again on the two-year anniversary of her disappearance. I know we just skipped over a full year and a half, but that's where this case went. Elizabeth's mom stayed in the U.S. as long as she could, but in the end, her family had to go back to Mexico. Her uncle Rosenberg had to go back to California, and it looks like Uncle Rudy may have gone with him. It wasn't until January of 2018 that Elizabeth's uncles were in the news again, but it wasn't anywhere you'd expect to see their names pop up. You might even miss it unless you followed Elizabeth's case closely and just so happened to keep up with true crime current events. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that most of you have heard about the Turpin family. 2020 recently did an episode about them where they showed one of the 13 Turpin children who escaped in the middle of the night to call the police. When the police went to her house, they found her siblings in horrendous conditions after years and years of abuse, some of whom were literally chained to their beds. In January of 2018, when the news of the Turpin case hit the media, it was everywhere, and news stations were looking to talk to anyone who might know something about the family including the Turpins' neighbors. 
I'll read you a quote from an article by The Sun titled, Suburban Hell, Inside the Turpin Family House of Horrors, Where Disney-Obsessed Parents Starved and Chained Up Their 13 Kids to Filthy Beds. And I quote, Two other neighbors, brothers Rosenberg and Rudenberg Salgado, came rushing to the scene thinking their niece, Elizabeth, who has been missing for three years, may have been one of the 13 found chained up in the house. Rosenberg told Sun Online, As soon as we heard that they had been tied up with chains and things like that, we thought, damn, maybe he has our niece. You never know, there are some crazy people in this world. My niece has been missing since April 2015, and we have had no leads, so every time a case like this happens, we wonder whether they will find our niece. We came straight down to find out more about the case, but then we heard it was their own kids. It was more than surprising to see the two of them pop up in an article about a crime that legitimately captivated the nation, but that brief mention was able to give Elizabeth's name a little more time in the media. Another three months passed, and with the three-year anniversary of Elizabeth's disappearance, a press conference was held. Fox 13 did a really great job reporting on it. At the press conference, police refreshed the public, reminding them that Elizabeth was last seen leaving class and heading home. The detective on her case said that while reports say that she was last seen at the corner of 100 and 400, she was in fact walking towards 500, giving her that straight shot north to her apartment. They said that Elizabeth regularly declined offers for a ride, even with people she knew. Therefore, it seems unlikely that she would have accepted one from a stranger, really bringing home without saying it that the most probable scenario is that if she willingly got into the car with someone, it was likely with someone she felt she had a reason to trust. According to Fox 13, the Provo Police Department said that someone knows something. And when asked what detectives would say to said person, they replied, You need to come forward and contact us. We are not going to tire and we are not going to give up. We will continue to investigate this case and eventually everything will come out. Your choice is to contact us and help us locate Elizabeth or wait and we will eventually find you and the conditions of that encounter will be decidedly different. Provo Police Department got Sparta real quick. Detectives hoped that the media attention would renew interest in Elizabeth's case or at the very least generate some new tips. Just one month later, they got a tip that they never could have seen coming, but that is going to have to wait until next week. Next week's episode is going to be the final episode of Elizabeth's case, and just like this one and the last, I cannot thank local law enforcement, the PI Jason Jensen, the local community, and members of the LDS community enough. Without all of their help, none of this would have been possible. For all photos pertaining to this case, check out Elizabeth's highlight at the top of my Instagram profile at the Heather Ashley, and join me there tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern, where you go live with me and we talk about today's episode and all other true crime cases on your mind. If you like your podcast ad-free, head over to our Patreon at patreon.com slash bigmadtruecrime, where for just one whole dollar a month, your episodes are totally ad-free. If you need more episodes in your life, for just $5 a month, you get a bonus episode on the first Monday of every month. All your episodes are ad-free, and you'll also receive a forever discount code for all Big Mad True Crime merch. And of course, anytime you sign up, you get instant access to all previous bonus episodes. I'll be bringing you part three a week from today, and I cannot wait. But until then, we out. (laughs) 